Hello and welcome to The Real Education Podcast with me, Tamara Spahani and Chris Winson-Longley. We are joined today by Kate Hoskins from Brunel University, um, our partners, our academic partners in crime, although crime is probably not the best word to use for when it comes to education. Um, but we're going to be talking about education, we're going to be talking about the research that we've done and the evidencing that we've done around the, the lesson plans and just talk more kind of widely around what it is that we're doing and, and, and how we kind of came across Brunel and what our journey's been like and kind of documenting it across the way. So um, welcome Chris and welcome Kate. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. No, thank you for everything. So um, Kate, obviously, for those that have heard the previous uh, episodes of the podcast, they'll know that obviously we've we've created this partnership with Brunel in order to um, to well, I don't want to say verify or, or rubber stamp, but just to make sure that we are saying what we're saying and doing what we're doing within the lesson plans, so that we have some kind of authoritative voice signing it off for us and basically saying yes you say you're doing this and 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 you are doing that or you say you're doing this but actually have you thought about about doing that so um but but you've been kind of leading the charge really with our with our project haven't you and it'd be great to kind of get a little bit of just background from you about how maybe you thought about the project when you first saw it and when we first spoke and then the journey and and, and kind of where it's ended up now and whether or not anything has changed in your mind about what it is that that we're doing with the with the materials yeah thanks so much so i think um when we first heard about the project i thought straight away that it was really interesting i'm a mother of two sons they love gaming i'm very familiar with all of these kinds of um different types of games um spent a few hours on minecraft last night with my youngest so i think as a as a personal uh, or from a personal perspective it was really interesting and professionally i'm always interested in doing research that kind of matters to me personally if that makes sense i think there's a real motivation and, a, and an interest there I think when we first heard about the project, it took some time to really fully understand what it is that you actually do. And I think now we've got such a better understanding, a deeper understanding, and we've seen it in action. And it's been a real learning curve for me, and it's been a really positive experience. I've, I've really enjoyed um, the process. And I think once we clarified so for me as an academic, you know, interested in the theoretical concepts and some of the kind of mechanics of how we think about things. I think once we've really clarified some of that, it's been very straightforward as a, as a process um, to go out and get the data. And we've got really interesting data. So I just want to quickly say before we carry on, we don't know, Chris and I still don't know the results of the data. We from the earlier conversations that we spoke to asthma, we know that you'd been into a school or two. The feedback, I mean, Asma was bursting at the seams, really excited, it seems that she wanted to, to tell us, but we don't know what the feedback is. So I, I think you're right, Kate, there was that kind of initial, it's that misunderstanding, isn't it? I think uh, one of the things I found very, very difficult, um, and I, I'm sure Chris will kind of back on this, is, is that we were probably using wrong terminology and wrong definitions and wrong language, which I didn't realise was was impacting the way that people understood um what we were trying to do and I think that was something that we had a bit of trouble with with you guys initially as well is specifically around the words cultural capital and, and specifically around academic defined words as opposed to the layman defined terms but I mean that for me was something that I thought was really 
was really interesting. And, and I think we've tried to adapt our language to, to suit. Do the lesson plans do what, what they say? I mean, when we came to you with this idea, uh, you know, is it something that you think works in a way that it should do um, that we've tried? Because it's a very different way of learning, isn't it? It really is a different way of learning. I think uh, you're absolutely right about the terminology and cultural capital is something that's been implemented into education through policymaker worldviews in a, in a sort of slightly partial, slightly ambivalent way. And of course, as academics, I mean, my PhD was a Borgesian analysis of um, habitus and cultural capital. So we've read the original text and, you know, engage with all of that thinking. But I think we really quickly sort of got to grips with all of that issue. And we, when we started then thinking about game culture, gaming culture, that is a, a much clearer fit. And I think in terms of taking it then into our schools through the lesson plans, it was much easier for our um, teachers to kind of understand and comprehend how they would be able to use that idea of gaming culture. Because what's great about it and yes, the plans do work, is that regardless of your ethnic background, you know, we know our schools are hugely ethnically diverse and also in terms of social background, huge amounts of social deprivation and being low income cuts across the ethnic uh, spectrum completely. And then of course, gender and other issues like sexuality, et cetera, all comes to bear, even in young children's experiences. But something that is almost like a universal language for them is gaming. And I've seen this, as I say, from my own sons, they've got friends across the cultural divide um, and it joins them regardless of these cultural differences. They're very, it brings them together. It, it, it reinforces their friendships with each other. It's a way of communicating that sits outside of cultural differences, um, religious beliefs, it, it's a really powerful tool. And I think when you then transpose that into the context of the classroom, for them it's really exciting because regardless of the cultural capital they have, so here I'm thinking very much about class-based capital, if they don't have a lot of that middle-class capital that you really do need to unlock the education system, with gaming culture, often they're really well placed and it's very inclusive and so they were excited they enjoyed the lessons the data that we've got we met yesterday to start analyzing it you'll be pleased to know Excellent. So that process has started now for asthma and i is all very positive and what the, the headlines we need to get into the nuance and that's what we will do is that they were excited, they were motivated. And you know, a few of the kids were like, what's happened to the teacher today? What are we doing? So there was something, and actually I think drawing on more of their game culture, I suppose I'm thinking like Minecraft, which is generally viewed positively amongst parents. I think, you know, to, to grow the offer that you have would be very promising. Yeah, that's, oh, I mean, that's a really long answer. So. No, 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 no. It's great, Kate, and 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 this is perfect. I just want to, uh, before I hand over to Chris, because I, I I'm I'm so, I'm so glad that you picked up on the ubiquity of the video games globally. I think, and that's the key thing for us if we're going to tackle those big issues. And this is what we said right from the very beginning. 
you know, we are trying to empower and center the child in the world that they're going to be living in. And they are going to have to deal with socioeconomic disparity, climate change, all of the stuff that that we are dealing with now is is what they're inheriting. Um, and unfortunately, everybody's siloed into a certain way of thinking. Whereas if we can get on board with the United Nations SDGs and all of those kinds of things that have a global impact, that's where I think will make a huge difference for their future. And I was really happy to hear you say the word inclusivity um, because it's something that we get asked a lot when we get, you know, one of the things that have you thought about inclusivity, have you thought about diversity? And, and, and our answer is always no, because the nature of what we do is inclusive already. Gaming mm. is inclusive. Everybody has a stake and ownership in gaming culture. Um, so there, are, there is already a connection to that. We don't need to identify. And the schools that we've been to, and this happened in the last one that we went to, the one that we did in parallel with you guys, um, it was actually the SEND students that were more engaged than the students normally because it felt like it was their thing, that there was they, they, could, they could own it. Chris? Uh, I just thought, yes, I, I just wanted to say I, I was really pleased to hear that as well. Um, and it's just... What we actually do is, is that when I am writing the lesson plans, I don't have a male or a female or any ethnic background, nothing. All I've got in my head is a child. How would a child want to engage with these materials? And then I offer, I try and offer as many avenues or, or whatever within that gaming world that we've said is that sort of shared um, knowledge and understanding they all have. And it is that that we're we're inclusive because we don't we don't select and we don't exit. Because I think the minute you go down that line of, well, is this helping this group of children? Is this helping that you'll begin to exclude it because you can't include them all as a specific target. So what you do is you don't you don't include any specific group. You literally include everyone. And I think it just goes back to that that when we were talking about shared understanding of terminology. When we say child-centered learning, whatever that means in the, in the world of learning sciences, et cetera, et cetera, to us, that just means, how would a child with their 10-year-old brain be looking at this and thinking, and how, and how, would, they, how would they problem solve, and how can you engage them and all the rest? And it, we have that, that first tenet, don't we, of every child is an individual. And if they're all individuals, then you can't pocket them into any, because every, I don't want to use the language here of, of any sort of diverse groups, but, but I'll, I'll use my son's one because we know my son is, is autistic anyway, we've talked about that before. Um, every single autistic person is completely different, completely different. So it makes no difference to say they're autistic. Yes, you should make sure you're not excluding autistic children through what you're doing and you're taking, but I, all I've done from that point on is just seeing what works in the classroom, listen to kids, and seen what works and did my best and just thought, as Tamir knows, I thought I was doing it wrong for 25 years. I, because nobody liked what I was doing. The kids liked it, but the management didn't like it. And Ofsted liked it when they came in occasionally, but, but nobody else seemed to be on board with this idea of treating kids as individuals and being innovative and creative. No one wanted to do it. It was all, well, this is the national curriculum, here's the content, just deliver it and get on. And, and I'm going, no, because they're not interested. They're not, they may as well go home because we're not doing anything. We're not educating them. Um, so that's where I come from. So I don't have an academic 
understanding of anything. I'm just sort of aware of what works in the classroom. So I don't know if it's called cultural. I, I found cultural capital because Michael Gove said it. <laughs> that's how. That's how so <laughs> many know. people found it, and I and I yeah. think that's absolutely right. And I, one thing I wanted to mention as well, what I've really enjoyed about the process of partnering with you both is the co-production of the materials. So I felt that it's been. Yes, it was at the start. Okay, what are we actually trying to do here? And of course, as academics, we do really try and pin things down in a way that can feel a little bit pedantic. I definitely accept that. But I really appreciated your willingness and openness to kind of change and evolve and to, you know, think about different terminology to ensure that we are doing the best justice that we can to these this this great idea that you've got and framing it in a way that will mean that our teachers aren't expecting one thing and getting another and actually I think when we framed it to them and said that this is about bringing in children's game culture to help them understand science that conceptually they could follow and understand and then when they actually delivered that content and they saw that increased engagement across all their groups including SEND students and those within EHCP it was all always very clear to them you know and from the data it's becoming very very clear that there was a lot of motivation a lot of excitement uh, that sense of innovation they were pleased to be part of it and so I think that process of refining terminology is just part of what we do and I think sometimes you know when I start with my PhD students and they're sort of thinking oh, I'm going to do this and we're like Oh, no, 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 we're going to actually, we're just going to take it over here. And of course, there's a natural uh, discomfort with that. And I accept that. And I went through it myself as a PhD student, but I learned a lot. And I think the co-production of the materials has been a strength. And the discussion about that has been, you know, the, the lesson plans that we took into schools were great. And including more of the characters throughout the lesson plans children loved it they yeah. loved it because it kept coming back of no we're still on sonic and how do we then relate this you know how do we relate the classification so it it wasn't tokenism because i think that's a really important thing as well any sort of tokenism around oh we're going to include game characters here's a picture of sonic on the first page of the powerpoint and now here's your science lesson actually um, and your material is not like that and has not been like that. But I do think there is material out there that, that is like that. And I think teachers are wary and children are wary. And so I think what was refreshing for our teachers and the children in the schools was that it was actually coherent. It was a coherent story, narrative thread running through the plan. And it then ended with the classification, which they thought was brilliant. It was the, the best thing to be able to classify these animals. and they're animals they're not people so again there's that inclusivity around the characters themselves and I accept that not all games lend themselves in quite the same way that Sonic does but I definitely think there's scope and capacity to extend the offer and I think the more we can get this message out there the better for children in education because school I mean it's interesting you talk there about the 80s and 90s you know I started secondary school in 88 revealing my age at the start of the national I'm, I'm not that much younger Kate. <laughs> and and so we were the first cohort to go through this really quite rigid and it seems to me that since that period of time the box that is school has become smaller and smaller and smaller 
and harder to fit into. And my eldest son has sensory processing disorder and school for him, particularly primary school, has been such an uphill challenge because he doesn't want to sit still. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't fit into the expectations. Something like this for him in year six, if I could turn back the clock, it would have been wonderful because it would have spoken to him. It would have engaged him and it would have helped him. And I mean, I think thinking um, theoretically, I'm a trustee for the Frobel Trust, uh, which is a Frobel is a kind of, you know, early childhood philosophy. And the reason why I'm so involved with the Frobel Trust is because Frobel's kind of mantra was start where the learner is, not where they ought to be. And for me, that one phrase has informed so much of my thinking and my aspiration for the work that I do. Rather than always starting at a deficit position of what you don't have, you don't have cultural capital, so we're going to top you up with it. Actually, let's start where you are. Let's find out what knowledge you do have. And most kids, I think all the kids in the classes we've been into have gaming culture. Yeah, and most and most teachers will as well, Kate. And I'm, I, I want to pick up on a couple of things that you've said, but um, that, I mean, one of our tenets is teach children or teach how to learn, not what to learn, which is not too dissimilar to, to what you're saying, I think. And, and it's about the journey of the individual child and the agency of the individual child or learner. It doesn't have to be a child. It's the learner that, that you need to that you need to focus on. So, I mean, but I mean, what's really lovely to, to hear you say is, is that they they worked and that they engaged all the children because that's kind of the, the plan. And. And this narrative that you talk about when you're talking about um, kind of the, the way in which the lessons w were created, I mean, obviously that's all Chris. And this is uh, this is the genius of, of how, because he's an experienced teacher, and he won't say this because he's too humble and too, too, too nice, but his experience as a frontline teacher, never really going into management position, has, has allowed him to find all of the different levels of students and, and how they work. So when, when I say to Chris, I want to do a lesson on, it, it takes as you know it takes us a couple of weeks to really think through the process and how we can align it with the national curriculum but without using the national curriculum as our driver but almost as a, as a potential anchor in some places so that we can get it through the school systems um, because we know that the teachers uh, are always going to be uh, probably not so accepting of, of gaming and and this is you know we talk about language and terminology we hate uh, and we've said it to you guys before we hate the phrases digital literacy we hate the phrases ed tech we hate and we hate everything that comes with it because in the same way that cultural capital was de has been defined by different people in different ways those terminologies have also been defined and outlined in different ways so having you guys on board to help clarify and justify and this thing where you know bringing back the characters and the cooperation between that's exactly the relationship that we wanted um so we're really happy and proud of the way that the materials have evolved because like you say we want to make it better for the child for the teacher we want to help teachers get through curriculum problems and get through you know delivering lessons we want the children to feel ownership over the materials and also over their own learning that will then inspire them to carry on learning it's about instilling that love of learning and and finding relevant ways to contextualize their learning without it being a siloed subject matter and and that's where 
kind of we go with all of that stuff and and that whole conversation that Chris and I have when we start a lesson is like right this is the game that I want to use what can we do from the curriculum not what from the curriculum can we shoehorn gaming into and it's a very different way of thinking I want the curriculum lessons on Minecraft by the way sorry Chris <laughs> I was just that thing you said about start the child where they are um, that's every lesson in a, I mean, it isn't. I mean, I, I'm not going to use my analogy about the train again to me. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> but I have this. I have just to give you the overview of the analogy. It's like the education system is a train, and the kids are on the train. It's going to the stations through the five years in secondary school, and at each station stop, all the new knowledge and everything comes on board. And you, and you, anybody who's not up moves to the back of the train and starts getting dragged backwards. So by the time the train gets to where it's going. All the people at the front of the train get off and they've got their GCSEs. There are hundreds of kids, three stations back on this long train that are now being told to walk up and leave the, leave the station, but they're not allowed to visit the other because they've slowed down and they haven't kept up and all that. And that, I know from my own experience that in, even in an English class that I've taught for a year, you, you do some Shakespeare and you do something else, you start poetry and half the kids haven't got a clue what you're and you and it's like again it's it's always mixed ability it is always and i think the other important thing that's a, that's a much broader issue that idea of taking them from where they are also you've got to take them where they're going not where you think they should be going and that's my problem with the national curriculum and that idea of cultural capital that gove dictate because if you're identifying the capital you need then that sets you in time that's what Gove or whoever thinks is important now and again that's very dangerous because you're missing out all sorts of other experiences and lived experiences and everything else and, and you are and the national curriculum does that it validates certain subject areas and certain ways of being and certain ways of thinking so I think you've got to not only start where the child is and see where they are but also see where they are going and be guiding and facilitate. I've always said to Timur, I'm not a teacher, I'm a facilitator. The child's brain is perfectly capable of learning and doing what it needs to do, providing you give it the, the confidence and, and the tools and everything else. What you don't want to do is fill that head with nonsense that's, that stops them being who, even knowing themselves. I mean, sorry, it all sounds very pretentious suddenly, but no, kid, kids' identities are very fragile things. And I'm, and I, I never wanted to damage a child. I told Tamir, I, I sort of worked on the doctor one, do no damage. If you're doing damage, then stop, send them home. Just say, look, we're not doing English today because obviously it's going to damage you. So I'd rather you went home. But, and that was always where I was. If, if the English could go to hell if something more important was happening in that room. And I'm afraid that, you know, I do supply now in a school and, and it's not, it's got even worse. <laughs> that no, you will jump through these hoops and you will do this exam and we don't really care who you are. We'll say we care who you are, but the entire system will not allow you to be who you are. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's oh, like people say I, one thing, but it does something. It does something completely different. And I think there's a few things there. I mean, I really encourage you to have a look at the Frobelian work on slow pedagogy, which is about very much child-centered approach. So absolutely as you say follow their interests and there's some video resources on the website that if people are interested in are well worth having a look at that just look at and I mean it's in the context of early years I should say that but how slow pe pedagogy can 
enable and include all children regardless of their background and experience. I think, you know, thinking about Michael Gove and what he said about cultural capital, I mean, I have written um, some critiques about this at some length, I must admit. The reason why we've been critical of this idea is that there's, I suppose some of it goes back to Basil Bernstein's question in the 1970s, which is, can education compensate for society? Should education compensate for society? So Michael Gove's idea that cultural capital, which refers to reified forms of capital gathered through inculcation in early childhood, through access to um, music, to museums, to literature, to a way of being a presence in the world in a very particular classed way. The idea that you could go into secondary school and gain some of that from having school trips or being read Shakespeare really does leave something to be desired because some of these children, it, it will not resonate with their culture, be that a class culture, an ethnic culture, and it will simply make them feel more and more outside. And what that then does, my fear, is that it works on the individual child. And the, the kind of neoliberal discourse that frames education today says, well, everyone gets the same opportunity. If you work hard, you take your opportunities and, and you'll get on. And so then if, if a child does then fail, they internalise it. And I see it so much at university with some of our undergraduates that they've internalised a sense of failure, of not being enough, of not being good enough, because they don't fit this. Okay, I'm going to just interrupt you there very quickly, because this happened to my daughter, who's in year two, who's just done her SATs. I told this to Chris the other day, and this child, is she's very sharp, very witty, very clever. She knows, and she's in there. She did a SATs, and she got a couple of things. She only She didn't do particularly well. But she wasn't way off on the wrong answers. But she said to me, she's seven years old. She said to me the other day, she's, and we were doing math. She said, I don't want to do maths anymore. And I don't want to do science anymore. Mm. And I said, well, why? She goes, because I didn't do very well on my sats, which means I'm not good at maths and I'm not good at science. And she's seven in a primary school where it's all about play and love and all that kind of stuff. And, and that thing... That sat, that assessment, that one thing has made her feel like a failure when she's actually amazing at maths and amazing at science. She's doing stuff that her sister's doing in year six and she's all over it. But she doesn't see it like that because the praise and the response from the teachers and her peers and her class mm. is not the same as the praise from outside of school. And to pick up on your point of culture, I've said this to you, I'll say it on the podcast, but I've said it to you guys before. I grew up in a, you know, I was born in England, you know, raised in England. I was born in London, moved to Lincolnshire when I was very six months old. So there was in Lincolnshire in the in the eighties and nineties, there was no ethnicity or diversity at all. And even though I was in a good school, there was a lot of stuff that I couldn't speak to or talk to with my friends or my things because my culture and my heritage and the things that were important to me, I think I mentioned to you, I call it cultural baggage now, um, in which teachers have to then, and as you become, you know, we're in, a, in multicultural schools now where you've got millions of ethnicities and millions of different, you know, people with different ideas and mixed cultures within even the same families that have their own you know you've got your own expectation from your mum and then an expectation from your father and an expectation from that society and then all of their peers and then the expectation to be British on top of that so you know, you know a kid coming in from Nigeria talking about Shakespeare at the age of 12 when they've never done it before what what relevance does that have and that's why gaming for us was so important 
to kind of get rid of that cultural baggage again this is terminology that we're trying to coin but um but but that's the that's the point and that's why i think and, and this is why gaming was so important for us to use as a vehicle because you will always be even if you've not played the game there will be some kind of merchandise or tv show or other cultural access point a t-shirt with sonic on it everybody would have seen a t-shirt with sonic on it or minecraft or among us or you know all of these kinds of, and that's where we try to shift that conversation so you're you're right and that uh, that idea of education being grounded in in culture i think is wrong i think education should seek out what culture is popular and use that culture as the vehicle for learning because we're not 100 years from now we're not going to be sitting in class I mean we may but it may it's not going to be the same classroom that we're sitting in now I mean we've got magic boards in classrooms now we had you you know you know when we were at school Kate we we we, we didn't even have whiteboards whiteboards no. didn't even exist we had overhead projectors in assemblies you know that's the kind of stuff that we were doing and I think the part of the process with checkpoint and the learning materials that we do and, and hopefully this is what we're learning with you guys and gaining from that is that it's an overall approach to education it's not just the pedagogy it's the attitude that teachers have towards game i mean one question that i'd love to ask you is when you first approached the teachers kate and you said to them we want to use video games for for learning what was their what was their response initially well one of the things to say is that it's been really hard post-COVID to do fieldwork generally. Schools have been, generally speaking, finding it harder to accommodate. We have very good contacts at the university with schools, so we're really lucky. We've got our wonderful colleague, Sharon, who helped us. And it was because of that relationship and the fact that they know Sharon and they work with her, they were willing to engage. So... You've got to just sort of get your toe in the door, haven't you? And that's what she helped us to do. And then from there, we were able to explain further. And when they saw all the materials were there for them, they were delighted because there it was. It was a ready-made plan. And once, you know, this was generally year five, year six, so 10 and 11-year-olds, mainly year five classes. So there wasn't that pressure of SATs. There were, and, and we all know as it's coming to the end of the summer term, there is a bit more time and flexibility in what is a very packed curriculum and schedule. And they were really quite keen. And then they were more keen once they were actually in there and teaching and can see the engagement. So you've just, it's just how you get that initial approach. And I still think that that can be a tricky part of it because schools went through so much in the pandemic it was so unprecedented and for some of them there's still a little bit of a catch-up happening from that time but the teachers you know as they were engaging with it as they were delivering the lessons they were enjoying it the children were enjoying it and the interview data that we have I was reading it yesterday is positive and we've got a mix of teachers in terms of their own experience which I think is quite good as well so yeah. It's not a huge sample, for sure. There's five teachers that we interviewed across the different classes. But there's a sort of depth and breadth in terms of experience and prior knowledge. But there was a willingness and an engagement from all of them. So I think that's a real positive. Chris, have you got any questions? Yes. I, I mean, I, the lessons were deliberately written fully. I mean, all our lessons are like that. They're, everything is given because I said to Tamir, 
if you ask a teacher to do even five minutes work, you're not going to get them because they don't have the five, you know, it's again, it's these these words that people bandy about like workload. I, I don't think the media understand what a teacher's workload actually means. I didn't stop for 25 years. And sorry, I get emotional. That's evenings, weekends, six weeks holiday. You're kidding. Two weeks getting over it nil, two weeks just about resting, two weeks planning for the onslaught, and two days into the term, you're a week behind and you never catch up and all that. And I don't think they've got a clue that you, I never took lunch. You nip to the toilet and you run back into the classroom again, or, or you don't go from the classroom, you know, I'm in break time, you, you don't have time for a coffee or a, and I don't think they understand what we mean by workload, things like that. So that's why the lessons are, there it is, everything, even if you don't look at it the day before, as you as you start to run it, it should teach itself. It should just run, providing you're willing to go with it. And that's the question I've got, really. When you said you have a range of teachers, it's, I mean, we had this conversation with Mike when I said to Mike, look, I, I fully understand. We keep saying what we're doing is quite revolutionary or whatever. It's the combination that's revolutionary. Not that we're not doing anything different with teachers in a classroom that haven't been done for 20 years. It's just teaching. It's just kids working in groups, asking questions. It's all the same. There's nothing new there that that a, what I would call a competent teacher could can just do. But I'm just wondering: is the is the pedagogy clear enough, or, or is there are there points at where the teacher goes? Oh, it's asking me to do this, but then I'm going to have to rely on the children to come up with something, or they're going to have to have agency. Are they are they quite willing to let go to the children and 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 go with it, if you like, to to sort of trust the the materials? Definitely, I think definitely they are willing to go with it. Um, and I and I really get now what it is you're trying to do. I think through this process, I've got such a better understanding. As I said at the start of the podcast, it's one thing talking in theory and then it's another thing isn't it in practice and i think our point was we will do it we will do it we're just going to tweak these bits over here and we're just going to refine this over here and we're just going to make sure that what we take in is as clear as it can be conceptually pedagogically and then we're going to we'll be able to get the kind of strongest results that we possibly can if that makes sense and so for us i suppose part of the Part of our experience as academics is to be able to look over something like that in the material and think, okay, we just need a bit more clarity here. And we just, you know, and of course it's that thing, isn't it? Because um, I mark essays all the time, I mark papers, and it's about what's in your head and what's on the page. And we all do this when I start writing my academic papers. I have to rework them and refine them many times and then they'll go to a journal and I'll get peer review feedback because something that in my head was so obvious, I mean, it's like right in front, they're like, well, we don't get that bit. So then you know that you haven't quite translated the, the, the nuances and the, the details maybe in a way to make it accessible. But that's what I, I enjoy that process. I enjoy that refinement. I think that's what makes something quality um i mean it was really good quality anyway it's just that refinement just kind of takes it and makes it a little bit more contextually applied so the materials were great they used them they engage with them there was enough there that they could just run with it there was at no point was any teacher kind of going Ooh, what am i doing you know there wasn't a, there was nothing like that sense at all and some of them were less experienced you know but even with the less experienced teachers there was a real 
um, sense that they felt in control of the lesson and enjoying the lesson. Um, Asma's going to send me the data from the children. So what I'm hoping is that for the next podcast and when we talk again, my, you'll get you'll hopefully get a short report from us at the end of August. Then there'll be an academic paper, which I started writing yesterday. You'll be oh, pleased. Very cool. And, yeah. And so um, and, and I will have done some analysis on the child voice because that's the one I can tell you what my impressions were. But I just think it would be great. I do love it. You know, when you read what a child writes, actually, honestly, yeah. here's a questionnaire and they can write it down. So that's the next yeah. job of work is to do that's that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Kate, listen, I know we're running out of time. We've got a lot more to talk about, but we're going to we're going to wrap it up here. Um, I just wanted to just kind of finish with two things. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were playing Minecraft with your son yesterday for a couple of hours. Um, two points on that. The first one is uh, the first question is. Did you start playing Minecraft with your son before the checkpoint learning materials or was the checkpoint learning materials a catalyst for you to sit down and, and, and start watching your son play? That's the first question. Okay, so my honest answer is I had been gaming with my older son before checkpoint. In the, however, however, I definitely learned from you the importance of it because... As a parent, and this is going to sound really strange, but there's a lot of pressure, and you'll know this as parents, about what other parents are doing and how they're parenting their kids. And not that many other parents do sit down and game. And I think part of me was thinking, oh, I should probably be doing something more productive with them. I should. And this project has made me know 100% that this is time well spent with them. And so... I thank you for that. And they no, and I thank, thank you. you. And I and thank they you. thank you as well, because it's like, not only am I gaming, we did get lost in the sky in Minecraft yesterday and a creeper got us, but anyway. <laughs> um, but not only am I gaming, but I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not feeling guilty about it. Just, I'm enjoying it. I'm so, and, and we have to thank you for being an open-minded parent because one of the things that I've always said, and I said it, Chris was very much like that when I first started talking to him as well, is I, my thing is always when a child talks to you about gaming, shut up and listen or go and watch them because that's the only thing that they have more knowledge or information than you do and you give them that agency and it opens up that dialogue which then makes a whole lot of difference to the other stuff that you do with parenting you know it, it kind of it opens a, a trust level so i'm really chuffed and glad to hear that so I so that's that amazing advice. i took your advice good there, i'm glad it. though thank you for that so that, that's amazing and it's just so nice to hear that and i just wish more people um would would take that on board and then there's my magpie um and then there's the um and then from the other side of it that i just wanted to ask obviously so you think this obviously has legs and it's something that we can we can push so do you think then that there is scope to do much more within the faculty of education and Brun brunel's faculty of education and checkpoint to really try to push this out and to you know maybe influence you know the department for education other educators um you know the fisher foundation maybe in and nuffield trust and you know is there scope for this to be approaching these people definitely a hundred percent and i think yesterday when i was talking to asthma i was explaining to her the ways in which i think we can do that i i can absolutely see now how we scale this up i wasn't sure at the outset and that's right because if i was sure at the outset why would we do a pilot and a small piece of work? But I, I now have a really clear understanding around how we'll do that. Maybe that's something I can talk about in the next podcast. Oh, exciting. Very good.
Excellent. Well, listen, thank you all very much for your time. We will obviously reconvene in the near future. But Kate, thank you so much for all the work that you and your team have done um, and leading this and finding the schools and, and getting us in there. We're really excited um, to really push forward and, and, and carry on, on on this journey with you guys. And, and just thank you very much for all your support. Pleasure. Thank you, too. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. Thank you. And thank you, Chris, for being the genius behind all of these lessons, as you always are, <laughs> which, is, which is fantastic. And I'm so glad that, that we've got there. Thank you very much. We'll see you on the next episode.